Let's go now to God in prayer before we look to the Bible. Our God is always faithful and gracious and merciful and good, and so we can go to him, and we need his help if our time in his word is going to be profitable. So let's go to him now expectantly, and let's ask him to be with us and to help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come expectantly now to this time as we're going to look to your word. We have come, in spite of our weakness and frailty, we have come to this service today, expectant that you will meet us in our need and in our weakness. You are always faithful to do that. You do your good and supernatural work in our lives, always, and only some of the time are we even remotely aware of what you're doing. We take great comfort in the fact that you are here with us this morning, that you empower these means that you have given us to worship you, and that you use things like the preaching of your word to nourish us and strengthen us and sustain us, and also to encourage and stir us up to love and good works. We pray that as we consider your word and behold your son from your word, that all of those good things would happen. We pray that we would be stirred in love toward you and in love toward one another. We pray that we would know all the more that we have been set free from sin unto righteousness and that we would know all the more the absolute sufficiency of what your son has done for us. Remind us of the peace that is ours in him. Give us rest for our weary souls this morning, we pray. And we ask for that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, Friends, as we're making our way back to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians this morning, consider the earthly ministry of Jesus with me for just a moment. When our Lord was on earth and doing ministry pointedly for about three years, who was it that he made angry? Who was it that he made uncomfortable? Without exception, the people that Christ made angry and the people that he made uncomfortable were the self-righteous. Those who trusted in themselves that they either were righteous or could achieve it. Those who didn't see that they had need of him. Those who didn't think that they were sick but thought they were well. But then, who is it that drew near to Christ during his earthly ministry? Who is it that couldn't seem to not come to him, that just found themselves flocking to him? Who were those people? Well, it was those who were despairing of themselves. Those who knew that they were sick. Those who knew that they weren't righteous. In other words, it was sinners who knew they were sinners who came to Christ. Consider the woman of the city from Luke chapter 7. Many may be familiar with this account. Jesus has been invited by a Pharisee to come dine at his house. This Pharisee's name is Simon, and he invites the Lord over for a meal, and Jesus comes. And in this account, there is a woman who is referred to as a woman of the city who was a sinner. She's most likely a prostitute. And this woman comes to the Pharisee's house because she has heard that Jesus is there. 
That's shocking, right? That a woman of the city, most likely a prostitute, would go, would dare to venture out and go to a Pharisee's house because she has heard that Christ is there. She brings with her perhaps the most valuable thing that she has, some ointment in an alabaster flask. She enters the room. She stands behind Jesus weeping. She begins to clean his feet with her tears and her hair. She kisses his feet and puts the ointment she has brought on them. And it's very clear in this entire gesture that this woman has nothing of merit. This woman has got no righteousness. She seems to know, at least in part, who and what she is. She also seems to know that if there's going to be any hope for her, that it is to cast herself upon Christ. Now, how does the Pharisee react to all of this? He says to himself, according to Luke, if this man were a prophet, talking about Jesus, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Like, this shouldn't be happening. Like, this woman... Jesus should have nothing to do with her if he's a prophet. And then Jesus, he knows the thoughts of man, right? So he asks Simon the Pharisee a question. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say it, teacher. Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50. When neither one of them could pay, the moneylender forgave both of their debts now, which one of those debtors do you think loved that money lender more? And the Pharisee answers, well, I assume the one who had the larger debt forgiven. And Christ says, you have answered rightly. And then Christ points to the woman and helps Simon see. Simon, when I came into your house, you really didn't do anything for me, not of the nature of what this woman has done for me. And then he says these words. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When this woman came to Jesus, she was desperate. There was no one to comfort her. She came to Jesus because she was a sinner. That becomes quite clear in the passage. She had presumed that if there was any hope to be found for such as her, it could only be found in Christ. And notice the posture of Jesus toward those who come to him this way. We see this over and over and over again in the Gospels. He doesn't offer, in this case with this woman, he does not offer one single word of rebuke for her sins, though they are many. He says so himself. He says to her, your sins are forgiven. He says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As we often sing here, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. The only fitness he requires 
is to feel your need of Him. Jesus is a friend for sinners. There is none like Him. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking today at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Kind of like last week, I spent some time doing what we just did together for a couple of reasons. One, because this letter of Paul to the Ephesians is written in such a way that Paul grounds us in Christ, the grace of God and the gospel, and then he moves on to consider how we live life together in the church. But then also, as we were thinking about the gospel and to whom it applies, that will matter for us because in today's text, the right application of the gospel and of the law is going to manifest itself at multiple points. The gospel applies, brothers and sisters, to sinners who know they're sinners. And we're going to be thinking about that more together. Before we go any further, allow me to read now for us God's word, beginning with Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. This is the word of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. We thank God for His Word. I have three points for our consideration this morning. Three points. Point number one, walk in love. Number one, walk in love. We're going to look together at verses one and two. You see that verse one of Ephesians chapter five begins with the word, therefore. I said this recently when we had another therefore back up in chapter four. I'm not one for like cute sayings, but people have been known to say that when there, the, there is a therefore on the page, it's good to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And I think that's true. This therefore, I think we should understand, is there because everything that Paul has been writing has led him to the exhortation that he makes in these two verses, to walk in love toward one another. In light of the fact that we are not who we used to be, right? Paul has been writing a lot about that in Ephesians chapter 4. You used to be something else, now you are alive in Christ. You used to be the old man, now you are a new creation in the Lord. In light of the fact that you have a new life in Christ Jesus now, in light of the fact that you are to put away bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and all that kind of stuff, and in light of the fact that you're to be kind to one another, that you're to be tender-hearted, and that you are to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you, 
In light of all of that, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As we put our eyes even on verse 2, it's quite clear that to be imitators of God means that we walk in love toward one another. Paul grounds his exhortation to us to walk in love toward one another in how Christ loved us and in what he did for us. We read of it even earlier this morning, how Jesus willingly laid his life down for our sake. He died to make satisfaction, not for his own sins, because he didn't have any. He died to make satisfaction, to make atonement, to satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of anyone who would ever trust in him. And quite literally, in Jesus giving himself up, not only did he die to pay our penalty, he has quite literally given us his own life to be our righteousness. Because Jesus loves us and because of what he did for us, the apostle reasons, we are therefore to love one another. Consider the words of Jesus himself. To speak the way that Paul does or to write the way that Paul does in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 is not unique to Paul. Christ spoke this way too. In John chapter 15, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Notice that Jesus too grounds his exhortation to us to love each other in his own love for us and in what he has done for us. In considering the love of Christ for us, remember that nobody forced him or compelled him to lay his life down but he did it of his own accord. As we heard earlier this morning, Jesus is the good shepherd. The good shepherd, he says, lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. We planned in eternity past, he and I, that I would do this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Not only was Jesus willing to lay his life down for us as a demonstration of his love, he so perfectly and completely loves us that he can even say that as the Father has loved him, so has he loved us. He says that in John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love for you. Live there. Rest there. In thinking about loving one another, I am very thankful that there are many meaningful friendships amongst the members and the attenders of Covenant Baptist Church. There are too many to number. These kinds of friendships are strong. They are real. They run deep. They exist through ups and downs and laughter and tears and joy and heartbreak. They are friendships that 
exist in the mundane and in the epic. They are friendships that are characterized by conversations about music and food and sports, but also about God and suffering and the law and the gospel. I know I personally am thankful for the friends that the Lord has given me even here in this church. And I can speak maybe personally for just a moment that at the end of the day, when it comes to our relationships and our friendships with one another, I hope that anybody with whom I have a friendship, I hope that they would say and know something like this. Justin loves me. I know that he does. And Justin loves me because Christ loves him. Brothers and sisters in the church, we love each other because Christ loves us. Our love for each other is grounded in something that is much greater than we could ever produce. Our love for each other is grounded in something that is unchanging and unshakable, namely the love of Christ for us. You know, you have times in your life where you think, man, I've kind of gone to the well one too many times. I don't know that I've got too much more to draw from. I know I feel like that a lot. But the depth of the love of Christ for us is something that we can never plumb to the bottom. And it is His love for us that grounds and drives and propels us forward in our love for one another. We love each other and bear with one another because Christ has loved us. He has been patient and merciful with us. And He gave His life for us. And so we do the same for our brothers and sisters. Love for one another is as significant as it gets in the Christian life. Before we move on into our second point for consideration this morning, I want to ask you a a question. Based on everything that you've ever heard, everything that you've ever read, everything that you've ever been taught, if somebody were to ask you to make a list of the things, like let's just say the top five things, that should characterize Christians. Five things that characterize Christians. How would I know that you're a believer? What would be the first thing you would put on a list like that? I ask this because there is one thing that stands out above the rest in the New Testament. It's not even close. And that one thing, I think, sadly, is not the thing that many of us would have been conditioned to put down in that number one slot. That one thing, above all other things, that marks and distinguishes Christians is the love that we have for one another. I've done this a little bit recently because we're in this portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he is talking very practically about how we're supposed to live, about the ways that we conduct ourselves about how we do life together. I've been making assumptions about you and about me that because you are in Christ Jesus by faith and have been united to Him and have His Holy Spirit living within you, that you want to be godly. We do. We want to be godly, amen? We want to be holy even in the ways that we live and conduct ourselves. The most significant way for us to demonstrate godliness or any of those kind of characteristics is to love one another. We want to be imitators of God, as Paul uses that language here in Ephesians 5. You want to be an imitator of God, which I trust we do. 
Walk in love toward one another, says the apostle. It's point one, walk in love. Point two now, walk in love, not wickedness. Point two, walk in love, not wickedness. We're going to look at verses three to six. So while our lives are to be characterized by love, there are some things that should not characterize our lives. There are things that we need to flee from and have nothing to do with. In verse 3, Paul says that sexual immorality, sexual immorality, excuse me, all impurity and covetousness should not even be named among you as is proper among saints. These three things, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, they go together. And all three in the context are about sexuality. Covetousness, you realize, is often expressed in the scriptures to describe desire for another person's spouse, right? Like even think in the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment is that we are not to covet. And one of the things that we are not to covet is our neighbor's wife or our neighbor's husband. Paul says that sexual immorality, sexual impurity, and coveting one another sexually should not be among you. Neither, verse 4, should there be filthiness, foolish talk, or crude Joking. Now, a brief word on this. Last week, we were thinking about corrupting talk from the end of chapter 4 and how there Paul quite clearly means talk that tears others down, talk that is wicked with the intent to do harm. Here, the emphasis is something a little bit different. Given that verse 4 is bookended by verse 3 and verse 5, This filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking is clearly related to the concerns of sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. That's clear. As you read it, you can see that as easily as I can. Paul says that these things, this filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking, are out of place, and instead there should be thanksgiving. Rather than speaking in crude ways about sexuality, and speaking about crass ways about sexual immorality, our speech rather should be characterized by gratitude to God. We are thankful to God for His good gifts, even as our sister prayed this morning. And that's true, of course, in a general sense, right? That we're thankful to God for all the good things that He gives us. But I mean, in this context, it's very clear, given the subject matter, that rather than speaking in inappropriate ways about even our sexuality, We are to be characterized by speech that gives thanks to God for that good gift as well. In verses 5 and 6, Paul is going to say some pretty significant and important stuff. You can put your eyes there. Notice how he is going to warn against sexual immorality, how he's going to warn against impurity and covetousness, and how he's going to expose how absurd it is that we would joke about such things. He's going to do that in these verses. He's going to use language that we see him use elsewhere. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes words like this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In Galatians chapter 5, he writes these words. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, 
dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now put your eyes on verse 5 of Ephesians 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, we're going to take a few minutes to try to understand what Paul is doing with these verses. How is it, friends, that we often hear verses like these explained? Whether it's the 1 Corinthians 6 passage that I read, the Galatians 5 passage that I read, or these verses here in Ephesians 5. How is it that we usually hear them taught? Usually goes something like this. We get qualified statements of how for us as Christians in Christ, we can't live lives that are characterized by these things or we will finally be damned. Or we get qualified statements of how in Christ we can't do too much of these things or we will finally be lost. Respectfully, that's not what it says. You can see it just like I do. Paul doesn't say anything about living a life characterized by this. He doesn't say anything about don't do too much of this. No, he says that people who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God, period, full stop. Now, you might be sitting there this morning if you've not ever heard anybody talk about a passage like this this way and you're thinking, uh, I may as well leave now because I'm done. Paul says in verse 6 that for these things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, it's coming upon those who are not in Christ. It's massively important. If you hear maybe anything today, if you hear a couple of things today at least, hear this. Paul is using the language of the law, not the gospel, to warn those who might be arrogant and comfortable in sin. Paul is using language of the law, not the gospel, in order to warn and unsettle those who might be arrogant or comfortable in sin. We're going to continue to think about this. Paul is saying, if you think that sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness are no big deal, or if you think that these things are okay, if you think these things are perhaps legitimate expression of the freedom that you have in Christ, friend, you are tragically wrong. Look at verse 6 again. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And he goes on to say, anyone who does these things at all, anyone who does these things deserves judgment and hell. The takeaway, how could we ever think they're okay? How could we ever think that they're good? And why would we ever crudely joke about such things? As we've considered before, 
the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that the non-Christian sins and the Christian doesn't. The difference is that the Christian has agreed with God that sin is wrong. And that the Christian has taken God's side in fighting against his or her own sin. As believers, we don't want to sin. We're actually bothered by it. Because we have been united to Christ, we are grieved at the thought of offending Him. And so, to those who are struggling and contrite, we always hold out Christ. Yes, it is true. The law requires perfect obedience to it. Yes, it is true that any person who breaks the law in any way is deserving of hell and wrath. Yes, it's true. Anybody who is sexually immoral deserves judgment. Anybody who is covetousness, or is covetous, excuse me, deserves judgment. The law doesn't grade on a curve. And to those who are in Christ Jesus, the penalty of the law has been paid. And to those in Christ, all righteousness has been fulfilled. We uphold at the same time law and gospel. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8 that we uphold the law as long as it's used lawfully. This is an example of that. The law requires that you be sexually pure, that you not covet. It requires that you do that perfectly. Anybody who does such things deserves the judgment of God. And thereby, how much do you need Christ? How much do I? The one who died, whose death is now counted as your death. The one who lived, whose life is counted as your righteousness. To those who are in Christ, we always hold him out. And at the same time, to those who are arrogant, to those who are comfortable in sin, we preach the law. Why do we do that? We preach the law so that they might be crushed. You think sin is good? No, says the law. It will damn you. We preach the law so that people might be humbled and driven to Christ. To just kind of put a bow on what I think the Apostle Paul is saying in this section. I think in his mind, Remember everything that he has written already in this letter. In Christ, the law no longer condemns us. Amen? In Christ, the law no longer condemns us. And because we know God's law, and because we are new men and women in Christ and actually love God's law, and because we know that those who break God's law deserve judgment, we flee from sin. That's the takeaway. In Christ, the law no longer threatens you. It guides you. And because we know God's law and those who break it deserve hell, we flee from sin. Point three. Point one, you remember, walk in love. Point two, walk in love, not wickedness. Point three, walk in the light. Point three, walk in the light. We're going to look at verses 7 to 14. 
for the rest of our time together. In verse 7, Paul says, in light of what we've just been considering, we've got another therefore, don't become partners with the sons of disobedience. In other words, don't live as those who aren't in Christ. Don't live like you used to. We've been hearing that over and over. You used to be that. You're not that anymore. Don't live that way anymore. In verses 8 and 9 and 10, Paul is going to go back yet again to the issue of identity, who we are. I've mentioned this in the past. I'm going to mention it unashamedly again. The pattern of the apostles in the scripture, whenever they write about the Christian life, is always one of grounding us first in our identity, that we are in Christ, grounding us first in our status, that we have been justified, and then to go on to talk about our living. It is always identity forward. Our duty is derived from our identity. Who we are determines what we do, not the other way around. Because so often in our church context, many of us being raised in the church, we would have understood it almost the other way around, that our identity is derived from what we do. Identity and status always come first in the mind of the apostles. It's important that we see that. Their exhortations to Christians always sound something like this. Remember who you are. Live like who you are. Remember Christ in the gospel and live accordingly. Or you could even say it, live like Christians. But what they mean by that is you are one. And so live that way. Not live this way so that you might prove that you are. You are. And so live this way. Look at Paul's argumentation. You can see it as easily as I can. Look at verse 8. He says, for at one time you were darkness. I mean, this sounds just like what he had said earlier in the letter. That you used to be something else. That there was an old self and an old man that used to characterize you. You used to be darkness, he says in verse 8, but now you are light in the Lord. This is who you are now. And so, implication, live accordingly. Walk as children of light. In other words, live like who you are. Verse 9, he gives a parenthetical insertion. The fruit of light is found in what is good and right and true. Amen. And then he goes on. So you used to be darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 10, literally discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. There is much relief, friends, in coming to the understanding of the Christian life that the apostles had. Much relief. It's very simple, it's very clear, and it's very good. This is kind of how it goes. But giving an illustration of life on earth. It's as though the apostles look at us, the saints, and say, you used to not have a home. You used to be an orphan. You used to live on the streets. You used to live all kind of ways. But that's not your situation anymore. You're not on the streets anymore. You're no longer in the orphanage. You now are God's child because he's done that for you. He's made you his. 
You are now a part of God's household, and that is never going to change. So, don't act like darkness is good. Don't act like darkness is good. Don't go back to where you used to be. Live as God's child. It's the exhortation of Paul here in Ephesians 5. It's the exhortation of Paul in pretty much every other letter he writes. It's the exhortation of Peter and the other writers in the New Testament. Live like who you are. Verses 11 and 12, let's put our eyes there very quickly. Very simply, in these two verses, Paul states it, doesn't really need much explanation from me. Don't take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't go there. It never leads anywhere good. He says it's even shameful to speak of things that they do in secret. Certainly do not engage in such things. He says, rather, that we are, in verse 11, not to take part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to expose them. Now, by using that language of exposing works of darkness, I do not think that Paul is exhorting us to some kind of witch hunt. That he is exhorting us to, you know, basically go around as the works of darkness police and snuff out evil all over the world. I don't think that's what he means. This is not a, like, guns up kind of posture. He's exhorting us to something else. I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, because of something that Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, what do I have to do with judging those outside the church? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. So Paul's posture on those outside the church, outside the body of Christ, is like we leave that to the Lord. So I don't think that he is telling us to go around making the world just, righting every wrong and snuffing out evil at every turn. I, I don't think that's what he means. And I also don't think that's what he means, that we are to go on the offensive in that way because of what he's about to write in verses 13 and 14. In verse 14, Paul is going to cite what many agree was probably a piece of an early Christian hymn. At a minimum, it was a common enough saying that he could just reference it the way that he does. The hymn or the saying seems to be based on Isaiah 60 with the imagery of light and awakening. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Because I think they help us understand what Paul means by exposing works of darkness. Verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I think you have the text in front of you, you can judge for yourself. I think what Paul means by exposing the works of darkness is to bring them into the light so that people might see them for what they are, right? Namely, wicked, empty, and deserving of judgment, all so that sinners might be brought to Christ that he would shine on them. As I said, this is not us walking around with guns up looking to mow people down. This is us lovingly, directly, yes, but lovingly helping people see that what they're pursuing will ultimately wreck their lives and end in judgment. This is us inviting people to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. 
This is a right application of the law. As I've already acknowledged once this morning, and as we talk about often here at CBC, for us in Christ, the law guides our lives. It is our kind advisor in the Lord Jesus. Its teeth have been removed. It no longer condemns us, but it guides our living. It tells us what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what will produce flourishing, what will produce misery, right? That's true. And God, by his spirit, works to conform us to the image of Christ and even to conform us to his moral law. Amen. But right now, as good as that use of the law is for the Christian, right now, though, we are considering the first and greatest use of the law. The first and greatest use of the law is to crush and humble sinners that they might be driven to Christ for forgiveness and righteousness. And I think Paul has that in view. Not only has he been using the law that way already in verses that we've already considered, he is using it that way in talking like he does in verses 11 to 14. The law used in this way to humble sinners and drive them to Christ says this. You think that you're righteous. You think that you're okay. You're not. Because none of us are. The law says to us, thou shalt not murder. But then, rightly unpacked, we say, you know, we think as we hear that, well, I haven't killed anybody, I'm doing okay. But then Christ, in unpacking the law, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, the law rightly preached, helps us understand, well, have you been angry with a brother or sister, with a friend? If you have, you've broken the law. The law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. We think, I'm doing okay. Maybe haven't done that. Haven't slept with somebody that's not my spouse. But then the law asks this question. Have you lusted after someone? Because if you have, you've broken the law. You think you're righteous. The law says, do not covet. Have you ever craved something that your neighbor has? Have you ever been envious in your entire life? If you have, you've broken the law. The law tells us not to bear false witness, to which we have to ask. Have we ever lied? If we have, we've broken the law. The law's standards, though, get even tougher than these. The summation of the law, according to the Lord Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How's that going? Have you ever done that even for one second? I haven't. Love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing with that one? Probably not that well. Things that we've been considering recently in Ephesians. Don't ever tear others down with your words. Only speak in a way that builds up. How's that going? You hurt anybody with what you've said lately? If so, you've broken the law. Put away all bitterness. I'm willing to bet there's some bitterness in the room this morning. If you're bitter, you've broken the law. If your brother wrongs you, says Jesus, and repents, forgive him, even if he sins against you seven times in the day. How are you doing with that? Forgiveness can be hard for us. We fail to meet the standard. Forgive your brother from your heart, or your heavenly Father will judge you, says Christ. It doesn't even need to be stated that we all stand condemned. 
Friends, we have to understand in the entire scripture, in the letters of the apostles, in the words of the Lord Jesus, that there is an appropriate distinction between the law and the gospel that has to be maintained. Or we will be absolutely knocked on our backsides all the time when we read the Bible. What Jesus was doing so often in his earthly ministry was seeking to obliterate self-righteousness by preaching the law. Just because it's a red letter does not mean it's gospel. Jesus was the greatest preacher of the law who ever lived. What he came and did for us is gospel. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, and the Apostle Paul is only picking up this mantle here in Ephesians 5. Jesus and Paul, but I'm talking about Christ right now, in his earthly ministry was showing people that they were not righteous, but were sinners. Was showing people that they were not healthy, but sick. Was showing people what God really requires and making it crystal clear it is impossible for you to do what the Lord requires. Because you are fallen in Adam. You're born guilty and your corrupt nature only serves to confirm your guilt. You have broken the law at every turn. It is impossible for you. Friends, the law is impossible for us to keep. It crushes every single one of us. And in that sense, the law is hard. But the gospel is different. The gospel is not hard. The gospel is free. This is important because I think, I know I have heard this before. I trust many have. We've heard the gospel presented in such a way that the gospel sounds hard. That the gospel sounds like something that I don't know if I can do that. The gospel is not hard like the law is hard. The gospel is the free gift of God to those who believe in Christ Jesus. The forgiveness of sins is accomplished by Christ. And it's given freely to sinners by faith. All righteousness, that perfect keeping of the law that God requires of every human being, all righteousness is fulfilled and accomplished by Christ and is given freely to sinners by faith. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Our God is the one who says to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, the law demands everything and gives nothing. The gospel demands nothing and gives everything. They are different. Both good the law is good and holy and wise and true. It's perfect. And the law cannot save. Only Christ can. We look to Christ always. And what happens for us 
as sinful human beings, when the law has done its work, when the law rightly preached has done its work and we are crushed and humbled by it, and the gospel is held out, Christ is held out, it's like holding out a cup of water to a person dying of thirst. What are they going to do with that? They're going to drink it. It's like holding out food to a person who's starving. What are they going to do with that? They're going to eat it, right? When the law has done its work and we've been given eyes to see who and what we are before God and what he requires of us and Christ is held out, we cast ourselves upon him in faith. And then in Christ Jesus, the law continues to guide our living as the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of our Savior. We are no longer what we used to be. We are now light and no longer darkness. We are God's children. We're no longer cut off. And so we live like who we are. We look to Christ and we trust him alone. We cast ourselves upon him. We hope in him. And in doing so, receive forgiveness. We receive righteousness. We receive eternal life and we find rest for our souls. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would continue to teach us your truth, that you would continue to help us better understand your word, your law, your gospel, that as we do come to greater understandings of these things, that it would result in love and joy and good works, and that it would result in peace and rest in your Son. We pray that you would not only use your word and the other things that have already happened in this service today, we pray that you would now use your table as we come together in faith to receive Christ in the bread and the cup. We pray that you would remind us of what your son has accomplished for us, the work that he has done that is finished. Remind us that as surely as we put this bread and this cup in our mouths, Christ died for us. We thank you for Jesus. We pray for you to continue to work in our lives that we may live unto you. And we pray for that in Christ's name.